Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. Thank you very much, everybody. This is going to be a great episode. I'm so happy. You don't know how hard it was to get this guest, Bob Emmer, who is the head honcho at the Shout Factory. Normally, you get a guest, you call them, you say, hey, could you come do this? What's happening? Not Bob Emmer. You have to take Bob Emmer out to breakfast at Johnny O'Groats. You have to wine and dine them with $26.56 plus tip. Big money, everybody. You have to talk about your childhood, what your problems are in life, how many divorces you've had, and if maybe, maybe you've ever eaten pork in your lifetime. And then once you get through that, then you call him again and he says, hey, can we meet again before we do the podcast? And then you try to give him a firm no. And then luckily he comes by because Bob, like many of our guests, have never done a podcast before, and it's very exciting to have them here. And as you know, I want to thank all of you so much for everything. You guys are amazing. You guys have changed the way I think about the world, and you've been so supportive about this podcast. And everywhere I go, people have been so great and telling me how they listen and they like it and it helps and they learn a lot about these people and there's life lessons and it's just amazing. Every time somebody comes up to me, I'm just blown away that you can do something like this in your spare time. And there's people who all over our business and all over the world and other businesses that it's meaningful to. I guess that's what we all do it for, to also 
help everybody that we can. And so, as you know, normally I look at my guest and I think of something to say that means something, and I never know what I'm going to say. And I was looking over some of the things that Bob Emmer has been associated with, and this is a man who has been through the gamut 40 years in this business about working in distribution and acquiring all sorts of different extraordinary products in the world and has worked with some of the greatest artists in the world, including people like Steve Martin, Zach Galifianakis, Mel Brooks, Judd Apatow, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, the late Ernie Kovacs, and one person that he worked with in acquiring a show that's one of the greatest shows on television ever was the Larry Sanders show. And I guess what I'd like to talk about today is I was honored to be able to attend the Gary Shandling Memorial this past Sunday. And it was one of the most extraordinary events that I've ever been a part of. It was just so tremendous, the speakers and the level of laughter and tears combined was like something out of one of the greatest All in the Family episodes ever. And there were so many people there, you couldn't even find a place to sit at the Wilshire E. Bell Theater, which is a huge theater here in Los Angeles. And when I look at Bob and after meeting with Bob, I really had a wonderful feeling about him. I got a great feeling about him. I thought that he was a guy who was an incredible force in his side of the business and was able to create things and work hard in a world where you really can't get things done unless you're innovative and unique and special. And after attending the Gary Shandling Memorial, I think that I was just blown away by everything that Gary Shandling represented and a lot of similar qualities with Bob Emmer. Gary Shandling is a guy that was very, very complicated, and I wasn't one of Gary Shandling's best friends. I wasn't even somebody that hung out with him or did anything, but of course I knew him, and I knew him from passing in different comedy clubs and different events and things like that. And every time that I saw Gary Shandling, I just thought to myself, he was a brilliant, brilliant man, a genius in some ways, a guy who always tried to work harder than everybody else, even if it meant that he sacrificed intimacy or sacrificed relationships or sacrificed friendships or even business relationships to make what he wanted to do, which was extraordinary work, great product all the time. And I wanted to share a few quotes from Gary Shandling, if you don't mind. I pulled a few, and I think hopefully you'll enjoy a couple of these. Some are funny, some are inspirational, and some are simply just very, very unique. Here's a few of them. I think it's one of the main negative emotional ingredients that fuels show business because there's so much at stake and the fear of failure looms large. 
nice guys finish first. If you don't know that, then you don't know where the finish line is. I once saw an elaborate landscape in a gallery, drawn entirely in pencil, that took my breath away. Then I realized the artist probably didn't have enough confidence to use a pen. I once made love for an hour and 15 minutes, but it was the night the clocks are set ahead. I'm pretty tenacious as a perfectionist in terms of getting something right. I don't know why men are so fascinated with television, and I think it has something to do with, if I may judge from my own father, who used to sit and stare at the TV while my mother was speaking to him. I think that's a man's way of tuning out. I feel that everything I do in my life, I can do in a shorter time than most men can. It's the quality, not the quantity. You know, it's funny that none of the regular late-night shows now use guest hosts the way Johnny Carson did. No one talks about it much, but it's curious that they don't do it. They would each have to be asked the reason why they don't. I'm an optimist that two people can get together to work out their conflicts. And that commitment, I think, might be what love is because they both grow from their relationship. And the last one from Gary Shandling's journals, and he had so many of them, you couldn't even count them. And to me, everybody, I know this is an unusual cold open, but this is what it's all about, this one entry that I was glad that Judd Apatow sent and shared it with the world as well. And if you can get past some of the references to stand up in any profession you're in across the world, this will say it all for you. March 24th, 1982. Never stop working on your act. Never sit back. Always dig deeper. Focus on your work. Develop material faster. Prepare for guest hosting. Assemble material quickly. Be yourself. Be less dirty. Do the Tonight Shows closer together. Always try to be more honest and funnier. Feel where you're at. Be where you're at. Don't be jealous of others' success. And so I think when I look at Bob Emmer as a guy who has forged an incredible path, like Gary Shandling, and I see a man who is probably tortured on the inside a lot regarding his personal life and his professional life and if he's always doing the right thing or not. But at the end of the day, when you look back at your work and you can look back at what you've done in your life, you can see that there's no denying when you're doing things that blow people away. And if you want to blow people away, use the principles 
that I just read about, and I can guarantee you, you're always going to have the greatest chance of having the kind of career that Gary Shandling and Bob Emmer have. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're f***ing firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. My guest, Bob Emmer. I want to get started right away because I wanted to get this guy on the mic as soon as possible. I'm going to introduce him after he slips into a coma and comes back out. Then we'll talk. All right, here we go. Bob Emmer is a graduate of Loyola Law School and the University of Southern California. He brings over 40 years of entertainment industry licensing, acquisitions, and business affairs experience to Shout Factory. His business and legal skills are complemented by his creative abilities and industry relationships. His ability to identify and execute acquisitions, license, and create new projects has proven to generate significant long-term value. As Shout Factory COO, Emmer oversees Shout Factory's legal and business affairs activities, including major deal negotiations for content, as well as major contracts, including distribution, manufacturing, and financing. 
His entertainment experiences led to close relationships with many of the top entertainment attorneys, artist managers, rights holders, and artists and creators themselves. He has great expertise in all issues surrounding music clearance. He also oversees Shout Factory's international activities and their production arm, Blaze Entertainment, which primarily produces music, programming for DirecTV, VH1, and other broadcasters. Emmer previously served as executive vice president at Rhino Entertainment for 12 years, beginning in 1984, where his responsibilities included business affairs, deal execution, and project oversight for Rhino's record, video, and film divisions. During his period, Rhino's revenue increased over $100 million, largely driven by acquired and licensed video and audio product and integrated projects that he drove forward in his initiatives. In 1996, following the initial stage of Rhino's acquisition by the Warner Music Group, WMG, a division of Time Warner, Emmer was recruited to serve as Senior Vice President Business Affairs at WMG, whose record label include Electra, Warner Brothers, Atlantic, and Rhino Entertainment. Prior to joining Rhino Entertainment, Emmer served as Director of Business Affairs for MGM UA Home Video and Senior Vice President of Creative and Business Affairs at Alive Enterprises, a multifaceted entertainment management and production company. His early career includes assisting in the commercial development of numerous music talents, including the legendary Alice Cooper, Blondie, and the late Teddy Pendergrass. Emmer was also executive producer creator of the NBC late night music show I Loved Rock and Roll Tonight. He's a frequent panelist and guest lecturer at entertainment industry forums and seminars all over the country and the world and has taught several college courses on the music industry at UCLA's Entertainment Extension School. He serves on the board of directors of several charities, including the executive committee of the City of Hope's music and entertainment industry group. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a guy I'm thrilled to have here and you're going to love. He is one of the most original and unique presences you will ever meet in your life. Please welcome Bob Emmer. Thank you, Barry. I think I've just heard my eulogy. I've always wanted to hear what it would sound like, and it sounded pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I just I want to dispel a few things that Barry said. Please. Uh, yes, he did pay for breakfast. I offered to pay for breakfast. <laughs> he grabbed the check. Uh, yes, I did want to meet one more time before doing this because it's unusual for me to be asked to do something like this. I'm honored to do it, and I'm happy to do it. And the other thing is, you know, when, when, when Barry was talking about things I've accomplished, and by the way, there's plenty of things I didn't accomplish. I failed at many things. I think failure is a stepping stone to success in so many different ways. But one of the things Barry failed to mention is it's teamwork. It's not about me. It really isn't. I continually try to surround myself with people that are better than me, smarter than me, and are able to make me look good as well as themselves. And I think if there's any takeaway from this, it's you're not as good as you think. You're as good as the people you surround yourself with and, and who help you achieve the goals that you're, you're going after. So, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to say to counter the opening. There's nothing wrong with what you said. It's all correct. Teamwork is really, really important. But there's another side of it that should be understood, and you have to know when to be a team player and when you need to look at your own career and figure out where you stand at a certain company and where you are. 
because sometimes I'm not talking about you, but sometimes if you're out there and you're part of a group, there's a point in time where you get to a certain point where you believe you're at a certain level, you know what you've done has made an impact on your company, but for some reason the powers that be don't necessarily believe or show you that they believe that you're as important as you are. And sometimes, and I'm not saying when it comes to Bob Emmer, but sometimes when you're in a situation, you have to look at where you are and you actually have to say to yourself, you know something? I am as good, if not better, than I think I am. And I should test the waters and I should see what's out there. And I know I'm a great team player, but I also know I'm valuable individually. And there's a place for me. And when you were at Rhino Records and Rhino in general, there was a point in time, and you can speak to it, which I am anticipating and presuming, where you were doing an extraordinary job. You were a team player. You did great work. You helped them make a lot of money. But then you decided that there was a bigger and better play for you somewhere else. And maybe that play wasn't as powerful as Rhino, but you believed you could move to that place and take that to a level that maybe was unprecedented. Everything you say is totally correct. And I've gone through that several times and I'll speak to that directly. But I think, at least in my life, uh, every time I've taken that step, I've either left the team behind that it was well-equipped to do what they needed to do to carry out what we were doing as that team. And I became, for lack of a better word, a manager of a new team, always looking to assemble people to work with me. Uh, and, and you know, nobody ever in, in my vernacular and the people that work with me, I never use the word Barry works for me. Nobody, nobody ever in my life has ever worked for me. They've always worked with me. We have to, we, I have to have that sensibility in my mind. Um, you talk about, you know, reaching a point where there must be something else where you need to move on to another challenge. I mean, that's happened many times. I was fortunate enough to have a great mentor. I've had several mentors uh, throughout my career. Uh, the greatest, the best, uh, one that uh, anybody listening to, if they haven't seen the documentary, Shep Gordon, Super Mensch, that was done by Bear, uh, uh, Myers, Mike Myers should go out and get it on Netflix or wherever they can get it and watch it. He's been my mentor for over 30 years. Um, and we still talk on a semi-regular basis. We get together every Christmas to New Year's. I venture out to Maui where he is, and it's sort of like going to the Oracle for validation of what I'm doing, for advice on what I should be doing. And I think that's real important for anybody that you can't do it alone and you have to have another voice. It doesn't mean you have to listen to that voice. It's just to a voice that, 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 that questions maybe, or at least points out that there's another path. When I was working with Shep in management, he would always say about artist management, and as Barry mentioned, we, we managed some major acts, he would always say our job was to lay paths out. You know, you can go left and this is what lies ahead, I believe as a manager, or you can go right and that's what lies ahead. But the ultimate decision has to be theirs. And if they decide to go right, your job is to fiercely defend that position and make that the best position possible. You know, and you know, hopefully prove yourself wrong that going left or going right wasn't the correct path. 
what they chose was the, the best path. My so, mother used to say, whatever decision you make, make it the right one. Right. It is the right one, whatever you make. You also brought up about, you know, changing and, and you know, where you are in life. And I, I recently, not recently, two days ago, celebrated for me a milestone uh, in my a birthday, which I turned 65, which affected me more than any other birthday I've had. And I spent the whole day up until the evening for, for a dinner uh, get-together with some friends and my wife. I spent the day actually being alone. I wanted to be alone. I slept at an apartment that I keep usually with my wife. I told my wife, go home. I want to be alone at the apartment. I wanted to just reflect on things that I've done and things I want to do. Um, you know, as recently as this past uh, uh, New Year's, I, when I was in Maui, I was thinking about what am I going to do next and how am I going to position myself to move on? Okay, maybe, you know, Shout Factory, 13 years. Uh, I've met those challenges. I need a new challenge. And lo and behold, and this seems to always happen, something happened that said, wait a minute, you can't leave yet. There's a new challenge out there. And that new challenge happened to be acquiring Mystery Science Theater, which uh, hopefully many of you listening out there understand and know this cult property. But we acquired it and decided that it was necessary to uh, or we wanted to produce new episodes, which hadn't been done in over 10 years. This and was a great show that was on Comedy Central for a long time, created by Joel Hodgson. Right, and Joel's still involved with the new one. And we decided that we would reboot it, and we needed to raise, or we had to pay you know, several million dollars to do three episodes. And we said, wait a minute, maybe there's enough of a following out there with Kickstarter that we can raise the money and do the three episodes. And you know what? We underestimated, which is always another good thing. You know, you, you uh, underpromise and overachieve or underestimate and overachieve. And we wound up breaking the uh, Veronica Mars and the existing record of raising money for a rebooted television or new film. And we raised $6.5 million. On Kickstarter. On Kickstarter. We are putting all that money into producing not two or three, but 14 new episodes. And uh, in the not too distant future, uh, we'll be announcing what network will be picking up all 14 episodes. And hopefully this will lead to others. Well, that to me was exciting. And that to me said, wait a minute, uh, I've just found the new challenge. It's not just Mystery Science Theater, but just how do I move on and do more new production? And, and maybe, you know, you know, not maybe, that is the new thing that gets me excited. Because if you're not excited, it doesn't pay to keep doing what you're doing. Maybe you have to keep doing it for a, a period of time while you seek other things to do. Uh, and my two words that came out of this reflective day, as I see my days, you know, are, are much uh, shorter, time fleets much quicker, are the two words of seize and squeeze, that each day you have to seize the day and you have to squeeze the most out of it. So that's my new mantra, seize and squeeze each day. I'm going to have to use that next time I swipe right. Uh, <laughs> Be my uh, guest, and you don't even have to credit me or pay a royalty. That's fantastic. Tell our audience some dark thoughts you had alone that day. Mortality. One word. Something that I, I have problems with. I enjoy my life. I enjoy the people around me. I enjoy going places and meeting new people and having new experiences, and I have to come to grips. You know, I mean, it is what it is. 
I ain't going to change it. So I have to seize and squeeze and, and move on from that dark thought. But that is the darkest thought. It's been a dark thought of mine for as long as I can remember. I think to myself when you said that, I thought the first time I ever thought a dark thought was when I was in college. I was living in an apartment with a disabled man who I was taking care of for free room. And I was in the middle of final exams and pulling all-nighters. And I was on the balcony on the sixth floor looking down, saying to myself, it might be easier if I just stepped off this balcony instead of doing what I have to do. But that was when I was in my 20s, and that was probably because I had no sleep. And I was taking care of a disabled man that was very, very hard to do with all the work that had to be done. When was your first dark thought and why? Well, that dark, it was the mortality thing. It's the only thing that comes to mind. And I was and you young. had mortality thoughts when you were seven? I didn't like, you know, I'm an only child. So, you know, I had this sense of, you know, my father was a uh, degenerate gambler. He was a good father when you get past all the bad points. Um, but, you know, he was never really around for me that much. So I was raised primarily by my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt, and my friends that I had back back east in Miami. So that loneliness, I would be alone a lot. I invented a imaginary brother that fortunately I haven't spoken to for 45 years now, but you never know. He could come back in my life soon. Uh, but it was just that, that loneliness. And then I remember hearing, and I can't remember who it was, but the first person or the per first relative that passed away and my mother explaining what that meant. And I didn't like the fact that I could not get answers to what it really meant. Where were they? What were they doing? Where did they go? And that stuck with me. That and my aversion to gefilte fish. <laughs> <laughs> when I look at you, I met you in the lobby in this building, and I was just so blown away by your style and your youthfulness, and it was oh. so incredible. And that's the thing about when you meet somebody, you never could ever imagine that there was any thought of anything like that. And yet, I have the same thoughts of mortality because you just wonder how much longer you're going to have to really enjoy what you enjoy. Yeah. And you never know when it's going to all end, just like with Gary Shandling. With you know, Gary, one of the thing, with one of Prince, things... you know, with David Bowie, and you start seeing friends and family. And then you start seeing, you know, idols that you've had, and it starts getting very, it gets more real, okay? Another thing my mom always said, and I'm sure many, many mothers have said this and grandparents, if you have your health, you have everything. And one of the things that Gary Shandling struggled with so much towards the end of his life, which he didn't know was going to be the end of his life, you know, instead of concentrating on working or relationships or dating or anything like that i mean the main focus for him was just how to get healthy again right i mean how I to sit, feel I, better again i sit around with my friends now and our discussion of designer drugs focuses on a whole different bunch of designer drugs it's now lipitor cialis viagra if you need it, and you know whereas go back 20 30 years it was a whole different set of drugs health is the most important thing because you can't enjoy it. I mean, health and a hard on, apparently. Health and a hard on. It's, uh, those are That's two my slogan things. for the day. There you go. Yours is season squeeze, mine is health and a hard on. <laughs> we can combine them. It could be season squeeze <laughs> and a hard on. I'll see you at the trial, by the way. Um, <laughs> that, but that's, that, you know, that's the whole issue. It's like, you know, no matter how much we have left, okay, 
it's got to be quality time, right? It's got to be time that you're enjoying it and not, you know, sitting around and having a, another Barry Katz be your caretaker because you can't do certain things. You know, my wife has been very influential to me about every year we got to do something different. We got to take a trip. And it's got to be a strenuous trip because you can still do it today. I don't know about tomorrow. And she's right. And is your wife younger than you, older than you, your same age? She's age appropriate. We've been together for 44 years. So I think it was age appropriate because otherwise she would have been an infant when I married her. And she wasn't. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. How do you keep a relationship going for 44 years in this business, in your business, the way things are? We all know the challenges. We all know the craziness. We also all know what happens in this world and the crazy temptations there are out there from obviously if Anna Nicole Smith was going out with a guy in a wheelchair, there's a lot of stuff out there that happens and that's around. And how do you keep something going? Like when you say you're 65, it's just very hard to believe because you can't really see everybody, but this guy has an interesting fashion about him. Even though he's wearing a pair of jeans, he's got a shirt that almost feels like it's retro. It's a shirt that you could wear today, but it's a shirt that you could visualize in the 70s. He's just got this thing about him, and he's got this unique watch that he wears, and he's just a real special, <laughs> unique guy. So I'm blushing, by the way. So how do you make a relationship work when 50% of the marital planes are going down and crashing? Right. How well, does yours stay for 44 years? Well, before I answer that question, I want to answer the question about being 65. Because people say, you know what today's 65 is? And I have a quick answer to that. It's effing 65. Don't forget it. If you start slipping into the thing, oh, today's 65 is uh, yesterday's 44. And no, man, seize and squeeze, live today. How do you preserve a relationship? The simple explanation is I have made a conscious decision, and I think other people should consider this. You make whatever decisions you want. But I made a conscious decision to trade some monopoly dollars for happiness dollars. So, you know, do I live a good life? Absolutely. Do I have enough to provide amply for myself and my family? Absolutely. Probably a little more. I've been blessed and fortunate to do that. But I will never do that 
to the detriment of spending time with my wife, spending time with my kids, now with my grandkids. There's a balance. And if you put the life out of balance and say, you know what, I am going to be the most successful person in whatever I'm doing. I'm going to be the most successful podcaster, and I will do whatever it takes to do that. I will bet you, you'll be sacrificing something on the other side. If you were to say, I'm going to be a very good podcaster, and I'm going to have one of the best podcasts out there, and I'm also going to have a great relationship, and I'm going to be a good humanitarian, blah, blah, blah. I think for me, that serves me better. It makes me feel better about myself. God, I worry about that myself because I oftentimes am editing these podcasts on Sundays and I'm up till the wee hours of the morning with these producers here in the room working on getting it the way I think is perfect. And you're right, I worry about those sacrifices and you're not going to be on your deathbed thinking to yourself, oh, wow, that was really great the way I transitioned Bob Emmer's question about his marriage to the next question. You're going to think about if you were there to see your son's home run. Exactly. Yeah. I was there to see mine. I still have it framed. I look at it probably once a year when baseball season starts. Funny as you bring that up. But it, it means a lot. Yesterday, I spent two hours at dusk pitching hundreds and hundreds of baseballs to my sons. And one of my sons hit two out. His first two, he hit out in the big field. It was practice, but for 10 years old, it's great. Not so shabby. And my yeah. other son was just knocking them all over the field, too, probably more consistently and harder, just didn't get it over. But will, I know he will. So it's very exciting. So, and, and by I, the way, that balance that I talk about doesn't always work. I mean, there, there's, there are sacrifices on both sides that have to be made. I mean, there are times like, hey, we got to do this. No, I need to do this for work. But we haven't done anything all week. Well, I, got, I have to. I mean, but... When I use that word, I have to, there, or my wife uses it, there is really a reason behind it. It can't be used as an excuse or a justification 24-7. It has to be used in the right context. Talk about a time that you can tell us about where your work destroyed a great moment in your personal life. I'm sure there were times, I can't think of the specific instance. Like last week I did a podcast with Cindy Shupak, who was an executive producer on Sex and the City and was on Raymond and Coach and Modern Family. And she talked about how she got a commitment to her own show to write and produce. And she got a commitment right before she was going away on this wonderful trip in the mountains with her husband or fiance and he's out snowboarding and skiing every day and she's holed up in the hotel room it looks like an office she's got everything all over the place and he'd leave in the morning come back and her whole trip was taken aback because of that i can't remember exact instances but i know there have been many that where i'm out on the road or i'm doing something and i can't get back in time to share a moment or something happens but the one that comes to mind now, that, that was one that I was able to salvage, but it was tough, was when my wife, my wife and I were going on vacation and we had landed in Australia to start the vacation. And I got an urgent call that my mother was in the hospital and probably wouldn't make it another two days. And then the decision came like, do I rush back and see my mom or do I just accept what the doctor is saying? 
and we talked about it. And I think I was ready to accept that was the inevitable and we just have to do what we have to do when we get back. I remember my wife said, don't even think about it. We're getting on a plane and we're heading right back. So we just did a turnaround. And I was fortunate enough to see my mom. Both of you turned around. Both of you. She's not doing it. She's not going on vacation without me. I would not stand for it. No, she wouldn't do you it. You weren't with your sons. You were. No, no, just my wife. My wife and I take personal vacations once a year and vacations with the kids. So you took the 19-hour flight to Australia, and then you got back on a flight and went back. And your mom was. She was hospitalized. I think she was with us or with me for another three, four days. But that's what needed to be done, you know. Did you go back to Australia afterwards? No, no, no. no. 19, 19, that was enough. 18 and a half, 19 hours was enough. We eventually got back, but it just had to be postponed, you know. So was your mom lucid when you saw her? She was fairly lucid. And those are the moments I just want to share because I haven't shared these actually. But when my mom was dying... And I knew that it was only a few days. She used to love all these Broadway tunes and these old songs like Frank Sinatra, Strangers in the Night. And I would go on YouTube and I would sit there with her all day and play these old videos of all these people and just to see the smile on her face and her holding my hand and squeezing it a little tighter. And my mom used to have these things where she... Some things were hurtful like every relationship with your mom like when you get off the phone and you say I love you mom and she says show me don't tell me (laughs) but I'm so grateful I had that time before she passed away and I'll never forget it and I had that bond with her before she left this earth plane that was wonderful and you talk about mortality but when you're a man with your mom and you're face to face with somebody who's leaving this world, you talk about mortality and how you think about yourself and where you are, you feel completely alone and you were an only child and that yeah. must have been very traumatic. Yeah, fortunately I had my wife there with me. But, you know, I mean, those are some of the instances, but again, I, I don't dwell on those, you know, that where I missed out on things because I think a lot of times because I am conscientious of trying to make anything important or not just important to me, but important to my family, that I think those, those times that it's occurred have been infrequent. And again, I don't need to dwell on it. I'm not going to beat myself over, over it. It happened because of a reason, not a reason of being totally selfish to the detriment of another. And that's another lesson I've learned as I've gotten older, that selfish is not such a bad word. If you're selfish to the detriment of somebody else, that's bad. But to be selfish to yourself and do things that are meant to better you and not necessarily hurt somebody else. And when I was younger, somebody asked me to jump. My answer was, how high? You know, it was never, excuse me, I can't jump today. I have to do something else. I'm sorry. So I've become a little more selfish, but selfish in the good connotation of the word, not 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 to the detriment of others. Do you think if somebody were to ask your mom in a private room, listen, do you want your son to just stay in Australia and enjoy his vacation with his <laughs> wife or come back and see me what would she have said? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I think she would have said stay. I think she would have just said stay. It's what's going to happen, happen. But, the, but that would have been her being 
selfless, and that's great. You know, she would say, I want him to enjoy it. I would have beaten myself up. I would have never been able to overcome that, that I had to put, you know, going to see the, uh, the Aborigines or going to, to uh, you know, see the uh, Great Barrier Reef, overseeing my mom for the last time. I would never have forgiven myself. One of the podcasts we had recently with this great creator and comedian, Tom Rhodes, he got the call that his sister was dying. And like you got the call, it was only going to be a couple of days. And him and his fiance, they got home that night and or during the day. And he said to her, listen, do you mind if we get married in the hospital room tomorrow? And you know that you're with the right person, just like you knew you're with the right person for 44 years when his fiance said, of course, there's no question about it. We'll get married in the hospital room. We all know that the biggest moment in a woman's life normally is that wedding day. You can do another one or you don't. All right. I want to go way, way back, way, way, way back, if you don't mind. You're going to tell me what your life was like growing up as a kid, what the socioeconomic dynamic was. We're going to talk okay. about your dad, and we're going to talk about what your first inspiration was to get into this business. Easy. Okay. So my first thoughts as a kid, I was the fattest kid in the class. My nickname was Cow. Cow? Cow, as in moo. And that's, you were fat. I was, I was, I was the heaviest kid. I was the only kid in elementary school over 100 pounds in elementary school. Okay. But I was well-liked, so they called me Cal. Uh, this is when we moved from New York, which I don't remember anything of because my father got, uh, as a gambler, sort of got run out of New York and decided it was better to move south, and we went to Miami Beach. So I went to elementary school in Miami Beach. I was affectionately known as a cow. I mean, kids liked me. I was funny. Now, uh, Miami Beach, when you went to school there... It wasn't like it is now where you walk down the street and you're a minority. No, we weren't a minority yet. What it was was that we didn't have much. My grandfather was a tailor. He had rented space for his tailor shop on 3rd and Collins Avenue. Had the opportunity to buy that property. Didn't have any money, so enough money to buy it. If he would have bought it, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you because that's become one of the highest property values in the world, Collins Avenue and South Beach. When I was there, it was inhabited by all the, the hip hotels. The Art Deco hotels were a bunch of old Jews playing pinochle in front and palmetto bugs wherever you looked. And we lived in the back of my father's tailor, grandfather's tailor shop. I slept on a cot for most of my uh, uh, elementary school days. You lived in the back of the tailor shop? Yes, I did. With your mom? With my mom and my dad, I never had a hole in my jeans. My grandfather always sewed them promptly. And then eventually, my dad made enough money, and we moved to a, a small apartment on Michigan Avenue. So, you know, and then you know, my dad always had some issues making money. It was very difficult back then. So he was a cab driver by day and a degenerate gambler at night. And, you know, those things catch up to you. And it eventually caught up to him, and he had to leave Miami Beach and promised my mom and myself that he would go out to the West Coast and make a better life for himself and clean up everything this time 
and would call for us if we were just, my mom would be patient to wait. And she was. How old were you? How old was he? And how old was she at that time? Let's see, I was probably seven or eight because I lived in Miami Beach till I was age 11 or 12. And my mother, 60, 40, my mother was in her 40s and so was my dad. And she waited and he did call. And then we made that momentous cross-country drive that we had a 1958 Chevy Biscayne with white and turquoise. I won't never forget this. My aunt was going to drive it. In the car was myself, my mother, my grandfather, and my grandmother cramped in. We were going to drive cross country. Now, why did your grandfather and your grandmother come? Because that was the family unit. Where were they living at the time in they, Miami Beach? They were in an apartment near my apartment. Got it. We always lived close together. It was, you know, if, if, you, if you were part of my family or my mother, uh, my aunt, my grandmother, and my grandfather came along. It's just the way it was. So we started out to drive. My dad said, you know, you should be able to do it in five days, and maybe I'll come out and meet you. The first day we were able to amass 90 miles before the uh, water pump broke in the car. So we were like, it was going to be like, it, it actually took us, I think, 15 days to drive cross country. And my dad met us in Dallas. I remember that because he came off the plane. I hadn't seen him for five, six years. Uh, he handed me a Zenith portable radio, which I kept forever. It was like, wow, portable transistor radios. He said, when we get to L.A., you can listen to the Dodgers because he knew I was a big Dodger fan. So those are the things I remember. And then we moved out here. And in Los Angeles, did he keep clean or did he slip again? Oh, no, he kept pretty clean. You know, and as I often said, he was a great role model for me. He, he taught me what I wouldn't do as a father, as a husband, as a family man, as a businessman. And there's something to be said by that. I mean, I wouldn't say everybody should have a negative role model, but I had, I had a negative role model that I said, uh-uh, not me. You know, and that was good. And, and he, he kept pretty clean. You know, he would gamble occasionally, but it was never to the point that it was everything. It was like, you know, I want to play a little and this and that. And that was fine. This is fascinating stuff. So what was your first inspiration into the entertainment business? Well, it was necessity. I went to USC as a journalism major. I wanted to be a reporter. I still follow fire engines when I see them going. And I think there might be something exciting out there. I still... I love the written word. I'm, I'm not a big fan of digital journalism, to be honest with you. I kind of like the idea of a reporter fact-checking, writing, and what have you. So I went to USC as a journalism major. I wanted to date, but I came from a very humble family, humble beginnings. I was still living at home by going to school. So I didn't have that much money to take girls out and take them out for a good time. Now, were you still what you and your friends would consider a cow, or were you, oh, no, were no, you no. a lean, I, mean, fighting uh, machine man? Not, never a lean, mean, fighting machine, but I took off it enough that I didn't have to go buy husky jeans. I could buy normal jeans, and people wouldn't call me cow, and they still liked me, which was good. I always wanted to be liked. Were you good with the girls? I was okay. I was shy. I was pretty shy, but I, I was okay. Never, like, out there, but shy. So how did you have money to take them out? That's what got me into the entertainment business. As a journalism major at the USC Daily Trojan, I looked at the paper and I said, hey, wait a minute, man. You don't have anybody 
covering music, and music's an important part of a college student's life, of any young person's life. I want to be the music editor. They go, fine, be the music editor. So as the music editor, there was a, um, a situation at the Troubadour, the world-famous Troubadour, that every Tuesday night was journalist night for the, the act that was going to play there for the week. They invited the press to come to review that act, get the word out so people would come and see it. So I would get tickets every Tuesday night with two free drinks and two desserts, one for me and one for my date. And that was, that, if, you, if you were going to date me, we're going out on a Tuesday night and we're going to the Troubadour. And it felt good. I got to sign and, oh, Bob, good to see you again. Here you are. Tonight you're going to see Billy Joel. Tonight you're going to see Elton John. These were when they were breaking act. And I kind of liked it. So that was great. But then I realized there was another problem. When the show was over, girl usually wanted to go get something to eat or before the show. So I looked at the paper again, and I realized there was no food critic. So I became the first food editor as well. <laughs> so I would, get, I would get a free pass to go to a restaurant to review the restaurant. So Tuesday nights, I'd eat good, and I'd get to go to the Troubadour. And then I had the issue of, this is a true story. How are you going to afford the condoms? Forget the condoms. Where am I taking them? To my apartment with my parents? Enter. I'm trading in my 1958 Plymouth Fury for a 60-something, maybe a 67, American Nash Rambler that had the special feature. You know what the special feature was the Nash Rambler? No. The front seats went back to form a bed. You could sleep in the car. Ta-da! Everything was solved. Wow. So you lost your virginity in the back of the Rambler. Not quite true, but I'm not going to tell you that story because that does not go over the airwaves. No? Okay. No, sorry. That's too you bad. You ain't getting that out of me. That's so that was, that, I still wanted to be a journalist. I was enjoying doing this stuff. And then fortune, or just again, fate, and you know, so much time, luck factors into what happens in your life, or fate, you know. So... As the music editor, I used to get records from A&M Records as their, uh, their college rep would deliver records to me. And I would assign them to people to review. And I got this album in when they're by Carol King called Tapestry. Of course. This gets better, though. I gave this album to a guy who's as, as responsible as anybody for getting me into the record business. Now, you got the album Tapestry before it became... No. Yeah, before it became famous, but as it was just released. They just wanted released. to get it rele yeah. reviewed. So I give the record to a guy on the school paper to review named Mike Mitchell. And let's pause for a moment. If perchance Mike Mitchell is out there listening to this, I'd love to reconnect to you. I owe you a great debt. I'd love to see you, and I'd love to, to go out and have a good time with you. I gave it to Mike Mitchell, and he reviewed it. And he said it was basically the worst piece of shit he had ever heard. Just drivel, it was. Didn't deserve to be on vinyl. Now, those of you listening probably know it went on to be one of the all-time greatest albums ever recorded. I believe it was one of the greatest <laughs> albums ever recorded because, the you know, I always say it's about the stories. And the songs, but and, right. And, and she and, did and, weave a tapestry. Anyway, it was great. He hated it. And I get a call the next day from the college rep at A&M Records, screaming at me, you'll never get another free record again. How dare you say this is bad? I said, wait a minute. Firstly, I listened to the record, and I happen to agree with you. I think it's pretty good, maybe great. 
but he has a right to say whatever he wants to say. He's reviewing it. Freedom of press. This is what the this is what the fourth estate is built on. He said, "I don't give a shit. You're never getting another record." Okay, really? Steve Gross, the college rep. I said, "Steve, you know what? I'm going to call Herb Alpert tomorrow. Herb Alpert was the A in A and M Records." I said, "Because Herb went to Fairfax High School, and that's where I went." I don't know why I said it, but that's the truth, and I said it. The next day, I called A and M Records to complain. I asked for Herb Alpert's office. I get the nicest assistant who said, I don't think this is really something that Herb will want to take time to, to listen to and understand, but you need to speak to Lance Freed in the college department. So I get Lance Freed on the phone, who's a friend to this day, and I speak to Lance, I tell him the problem, he said, Bob, don't worry about it. Steve Gross is graduating this year. We're in the processes, and this was the word I was waiting to hear. I hadn't ever heard it or knew that this was the word I was waiting to hear. But he said, we will be hiring a new college rep next semester. Hiring? He goes, yeah, we give you 35, give them $35 a week and all the free records, and you service all the college radio stations up and down, the, up and down California. I said, I want that job. He said, well, you better come by tomorrow and interview. We have one day left for interviews. I went down, I Had interviewed. Had you ever been on a job interview in your life? No. No. Um, no. No, so how did you know how to be great in an interview? I have no idea. I just went by the seat of my pants. You know, I just said, look, I'm going to show that I'm enthusiastic and I want this. And I went in there and got the job. And I never, once I got a taste of that, I said, boy, this is, this is what I want to do. $35 a week and all the free records you could get. Not all the free records, a, a limited number. And that's how I wound up with Rhino because I would take the free records and the proprietor, the founders of Rhino Records, were Harold Bronson and Richard Foose. Um, they had a store on Westwood Boulevard. And Harold was the arts editor at the rival UCLA paper. And we used to go on Tuesday nights to the Troubadour and sit next to, next to each other and talk and talk about our experiences. And then he once told me, he says, well, you should come by the record store sometime. If you ever have any records that you don't need anymore, we buy them. Buy them? Wow, I could supplement the measly $35 I'm getting by now taking records I don't need anymore and selling them to Rhino. And that's what I did. I remember those records always had the hole in the that's top right. corner. That, that, I had no idea why. Because that meant they couldn't return them, that they were promo copies. Otherwise, there was a fear that they would return them for credit. So I'd give it to you for free. You could sell it for $2 to Tower Records, and Tower could return it to A&M for $6 credit. Got it. Now you know. You learned something today. So we forged a relationship. And... Through all that, I mean, I'll get to the other part of your question. How did I, you know, get into the other side of the business? I was doing this, and I was a, I, I went from label to label as a um, publicist. And one day I get invited to go to a party from Warner Brothers Records, who were servicing me records. It was a debutante's ball for an artist by the name of Alice Cooper. And everybody, including the hotel, thought Alice was a girl. And this was truly a debutante's party. And if you can go on YouTube or somewhere and look up the Alice Cooper debutante's ball or party at the world-famous Ambassador Hotel in L.A., I guarantee you... The Ambassador was, Hotel is where Robert Kennedy was shot. That is correct. And it's been closed for... No, it's now a school. Oh, it's now a school. But I, I will tell you, there's never been a party like that, and I doubt there will ever be one like that. Because the hotel and everybody thought it was going, it was a very classy hotel, that this would be a debutante's ball. And in walks Alice, 
and every freak that Shep could find anywhere showed up for that party, including Big Mama Thornton, who was this 350-pound African-American blues singer who popped out of a cake topless singing. So you can imagine everybody in the hotel going nuts. And I remember turning to the girl at the date I took to the play, and I said, you know, someday I'd love to work for a guy like that. End of story. And through a bunch of circumstances, probably three or four years later, I got put in contact with Shep and a guy, may he rest in peace, that worked for Shep, Denny Vosberg. I had recommended an act to them, and they signed the act. And the reason I knew this is I was a publicist, and I was in New York with one of my clients that was performing at Radio City. And when I came back, there was a dozen roses in my room. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. Sue sent me a dozen roses. Not on my birthday, but, you know, I wonder why. And he opened it up and goes, thanks for the client, Shep and Denny Vosberg. I said, thanks for the client. I called Denny and I said, you know what, what you could do with these flowers? I don't need flowers. I need another job. I want a job. And again, timing. And he said, you know what, we're actually looking for somebody to do publicity. And I know you're going to law school. We need somebody to do business affairs. This could be a win-win. Why don't you come in when you get back to L.A.? And that's how I met Shep, and that's how I got my job there. Another interview. Another interview. Two for two. And yeah, I've been pretty good at it. And who was Shep managing at the time of your interview? Uh, Alice Cooper. I can only think of Alice at the moment, but during my tenure with Shep, it was Alice Cooper, Teddy Pendergrass, Luther Vandross, Rick James, Blondie, and an assortment of uh, Burton Cummings. Burton was with him when I saw when when I joined. Burton Cummings was the lead singer of Bread. Correct? No, guess who? Shit. It's okay, Barry. You're not in the biz, God you know. Damn it. Guess who? I you know, love American the woman. I love the guess. Oh man, I had every single song. I knew everything. I'm sorry, I screwed that up. But you did Now the Burton Cummings. Now I'm going to make another mistake. Be no, careful. I'm not going to say that. Oh, say it. Go no, ahead. Because I know who it is now. It's Eric Carmen. I'm thinking of all by all myself. All by myself yeah. was Eric Carmen, who used to be with the Raspberries. Okay, let's move on. This uh, is not your area. No, the Raspberries <laughs> go all the way. I remember the Raspberries. That was their hit song. Arista Records, song. I think. Yes. Yeah, so I am pretty well schooled. I could tell you, if you test me, I, I'm going to test you. Uh-oh. Here you go. Ready? I'm ready. Got to name the artist who sang this song. Stuck in the middle with you. That's Steeler's Will. It's Jerry Rafferty was the lead singer. That is correct. Ask me how I know that. How do you know that? Because the first job I got after A&M Records was with a small independent called Blue Thumb Records. And we signed Jerry Rafferty at Steeler's Will. It was an English song. It went all the way to number one. Then Rafferty left Steeler's Will and just recorded under Jerry Rafferty. And he had about two or three other hits. Wild thing. The Trogs. What is this? <laughs> What do I get? Do I get do I get lunch? What do I get? <laughs> you get the Spiegel catalog from Chicago, Illinois, 60609. Wow, I remember that too. That was on uh, Concentration or one of the game shows. That's right. But I just want to ask you a question. When you went to the Troubadour, tell us five of the acts that you saw on a Tuesday night that became superstars. Well, well I don't know if they... And have... were you able to say hello to them that night no, as a critic? I'll give you, the last one I'll explain that was actually another entry to furthering me in the business. But the ones that were, if you know anything about Loggins and Messina. Of course. Their first album was called Sitting In. And yes. why? Because some act canceled at the Troubadour and they sat in for that act. 
So they were the opening act for Bill Withers. Uh, don't Loggins and Messina, your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll and Bill Withers ain't no sunshine. And grandma's hands. Yep. All right. So that See, was, I'm not so bad. Not, no, you're not bad at all. all. Right. Uh, the other one was, uh, and it's so, you know, I only wish her everything good. Uh, she was such a, she's such a great artist and was such a great performer, was Linda Ronstadt. would appear barefoot because it was Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Ponies. And Linda had an Uber fan that would show up every show and sit like in the first row to watch her perform. No, it wasn't Jerry Brown, because there was a time when she and now Governor Brown uh, were dating, but it was Albert Brooks, one of my all-time faves. Albert Brooks would be at every Linda Ronstadt show. Wow. Albert Brooks. Uh, and the one that I actually did something with beyond just reviewing the show was I was called by a legendary record person, promoter, raconteur, Artie Rep. It's a name that if you're not in the music business, you can look it up. One of the great characters of the business. He had a small label called Family Productions. And I get a call from his office in New York saying, I understand you go and review acts at the Troubadour. We have an act that's opening up tomorrow night. We'd like for you to interview him and do a feature story, not just a review. And I said, you know, you know what? I got to go see him first. If I like him, I'm happy to do that. That sounds pretty exciting. He's okay. So call me the next day after the show. Call me Wednesday morning. So I go Tuesday night and I hear this opening act, Billy Joel, who absolutely floored me. Was opening up for who? I don't even remember. There was no need to remember after listening to the songs that this was coming out of this guy's mouth, sitting at a piano. The stories. So I called the next day to Artie and I say, you got it. He said, well, there's a minor issue. He goes, Billy's not feeling that well. So you'll have to do the interview at his motel room. And there was this great motel that all the rock and rollers used to stay at on Santa Monica Boulevard called the Tropicana. Tropicana Motel upstairs, downstairs was Duke's Coffee Shop, where you could go in and wind up sitting next to Tom Waits or, or, or anybody that was somebody. It was just a, a real great hang with great food and great breakfast. So I went and interviewed Billy, Billy Joel, and it was a nice interview. And I get a call about three, four weeks later from a friend who goes, did you see Billboard magazine? And that's the big trade magazine. I said, no, we don't get it here. He goes, well, you better go out and get it and look at page whatever. Okay, I get it, I turn to the page, and there's a full page ad for Billy Joel. But now nobody had really done any interviews or reviews with them, so there was one quote, bigger than life, that said, a singer-songwriter to be reckoned with for decades to come, Bob Emmer, Daily Trojan. And when I saw that, I said, wow, this is really cool. What I say matters to somebody. And that really got me like, further embedded into the fact that I want to be in the entertainment business. And you called it. I, you know, it's, you know, it's, I, I truly appreciate artistry, especially in, in the music area, because I cannot play an instrument. I have tried. Lord knows I've tried. I have no voice, and I felt that the only thing I could do to be involved was to be an advocate for artists and work with them and try to be somewhat creative because it's somewhat difficult to, on one hand, say you're a business person, a lawyer, 
and the other side and say, you know, but I have some creative ideas. A lot of times it doesn't work. It doesn't work especially good at, at a lot of the uh, established major uh, companies, if you will, or institutions. Works a lot better with independents, where you do have a say because they just can't afford to have enough people around to do everything. So you can actually be a jack of all trades and hopefully master of some. Take us how you went from Shep's management company to Rhino Records. Oh. So I created that show called Rock and Roll Tonight, which was a late night music show. I created it with Shep, a gentleman by the name of Neil Marshall, who was also the producer of the show. He had done Midnight Special. Great guy. You know Neil probably from... Neil Marshall wrote a screenplay he that got screen- made. Uh, don't tell me. It's the one where he was parking cars, flamingo kit with Matt Dillon. Right. And we pitched the show, which we put together a pitch reel for the show. Shep and I and Neil were not big fans of video, music videos. We felt that they were definitely taking away a big piece of what music was about. And that was for the mind of the listener to create what that song meant to them. And I challenge anybody out there that once you see a video of a song, that's what you remember. You can't take it out of that context. It's that, you know, scantily clad uh, women, woman uh, standing over the lead singer and this, that, and the other. And that's your vision of the song. You know, I mean, all of a sudden it's no longer, did you hear that song? Most people talk about, by the way, did you see that song? I never saw a song in my life until I heard it first. But anyway, so we were against that movement and came up with this concept of doing a live rock and roll show that would feature three acts and what we call the magic moment of a, a music fantasy that the lead performer could uh, act out and went to pitch it. Uh, so we put together a sizzle reel because Neil had done a lot of other music shows, including Midnight Special. So we put together a pitch deck and a, and a sizzle reel. And um, William Morris was representing us. And they said, okay, we're going to get you pitch meetings at a couple of the networks and a couple of the, the independent stations. But let's Let's do a first one as a dry run. We're going to take you to NBC. Rick Ludwin? It was Wes Harris. He was the president of NBC West Coast O&Os. O&O stands for Owned and Operated Station. Station doesn't own every station that broadcasts them. They license it, but they own every major city. So LA, New York, Chicago, and I think three others, which comprised over 75% of the coverage for the country. So we go in to meet Wes, and, and William Morris warned us, You're not, this is not going to go good, but we want to see how you do your pitch. We're expecting nothing out of this. And we walk in, and there's this very large gentleman, older, and easily in his 60s, sitting there. Come in. Come in. What do you got? First pitch in your life. First pitch in my First life. TV pitch for a television show. Ever. Ever. First thing you ever created. Ever. And I'm sitting on pins and needles, okay? I don't know what I'm going to say, but we'll say it. Put up the video. It starts. We said, well, let's show you the sizzle wheel first. Call rock and roll tonight. He goes, all right, let me see it. What's up? And literally, couldn't have been five minutes into, into a 10-minute sizzle wheel. He goes, I've seen enough. And I'm getting ready to get up and leave. And he says, let me tell you something. He said, you know what? I don't get this. I don't understand this. But I got a time slot after Saturday Night Live, and I didn't understand or get that show. So I'm sure the people that are watching that show 
which is more than I ever thought would love your show. So you got a deal. You get all the O&O stations. <laughs> and we're like, what? What is that? I turn to the agent. I go, is that good? He goes, get up, thank him, and let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and we left, and we had 75% of the, of the country covered in one meeting. And, Unbelievable. And it was fun. And, uh, you know, I became very involved in the show. Uh, we were on for a season when we got canceled, not because it didn't do well in the ratings. It's another story that I won't get into. But it, we, had, we had to cancel it. Um, and i never forget that night. The, we had a production office in Pasadena at a place called Perkins Palace. We specifically shot 25 miles outside of L.A. because we didn't want to shoot inside of L.A. because I didn't want people like Barry calling me saying, ooh, who's on today so I can come watch the show? Because then you get a bunch of studio and, and music executives watching the show, and they don't usually get that emotional about a show. I wanted, we wanted fans there. So by putting it 25 miles out of L.A. and shooting it on a weeknight, the only executives that would come out there are the executives from the record label that represented the act. So when we canceled the show, I went back to the production office, and I'm cleaning up, thinking about the next thing. And I noticed that on a Friday, I don't get my paycheck. Yeah, it must be a mistake, because I would get a, a weekly draw from a live enterprise, which was based on the West Side. Next Friday comes, there's no check. To call Shep. I mean, what's going on? I, I didn't get my paycheck. He said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. You're fired. I go, excuse me? He said, you're fired. First time I had been fired from a job. Um, and he went on to say that it was for my good, that I needed to get out on my own, that I had served enough time with him. And I said, I understand that, but I got a family. Can you give me some notice and I'll try to find something? He goes, better than that. You need some money, I'll help you with that. When you can repay me, you'll repay me. Not a problem. And Monday, I did make arrangements for you to go to MGM Studios. They're looking for somebody to, to executive produce and put together a soundtrack for one of their major uh, pictures called That's Dancing with uh, Jack Haley Jr. and David Niven Jr. producing. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't screw up this interview, and heretofore, I hadn't screwed up any interviews. He said, if you don't screw up this interview, you'll be able to negotiate a deal or I'll negotiate it. You'll get paid more for doing the soundtrack than I was paying you for a year. I had nothing to say, but I'll go try it. I never produced a soundtrack. He said, you can do it. I'm telling you. So I go in there and I meet and I get the job. So I, again, again, another interview, get the job. Right. Now, I'm sorry to go back here, but you just produced Shep's first television show he'd ever... No, it's our show. We're partners on that. I know, but you, you came in, the first thing he ever got involved with that got on the air, you were involved... No, with. he had other things on the air. He had specials on the air. But series... Yeah, maybe the After first series. Saturday so what? Night Live. So what? We you didn't make any money job. on it. We didn't make any money How on it. How could you not make money? Because the, the, it was a barter syndication show. Oh, got it. Okay. okay we made a few dollars. Why did he say he fired you? What was the reason? Because he said it was time for me to get out on my own and, you know, make a name for myself, not be somebody that worked with or for okay, Shep. Okay, but this is a guy you say is still your mentor. You of still course. talk to him. Can talk. you imagine if you had an employee that you were going to fire and you don't tell them, and you stop giving them checks, do you think that you'd have a great relationship with them? Yeah, because that was Shep. It wasn't that he was not. He had already set up the meeting in MGM. I, I, to this day, think maybe he did forget to tell me, okay? It just didn't even enter his mind that, oh, Monday Bob's got to be at MGM, okay? He, you know, there's been a great relationship. I'm No way. 
All no, right. I, this was a good thing for me. Great. And so you're at MGM. You have a great run there. How do you get to where you are now? Uh, well, at what Shout happened Factory? at MGM is uh, I, for the second time, got fired. Okay. Now, why did you get fired? There? I got fired. Leave it at that. It's a studio. I, you know, I don't fit you, in. What happened was after the soundtrack, they found out that I was a lawyer. So I became West Coast head of business affairs for home entertainment. And for whatever reason, I kind of put it out of my mind now, to be honest, if it was cutbacks or whatever, or they didn't like my style, I didn't fit in with the corporate, whatever, I got fired. That was the end of it. Never forget the day. It was a rainy day, and we were moving. We had just sold our house, and we were moving into another house. It's great timing. And it was raining that day. And I said, okay, they, you know, at, the, at any major place when they fire you, they escort you out the building. It's a very dehumanizing situation. So you just bought a new house. No, I didn't. I was renting a house, fortunately. I'd sold my house. I hadn't yet found another house. So we were renting. And that was the day we were moving. They escorted me out. They told me I had to get everything out of my office. I negotiated with them. Could I come back tomorrow morning at like 6 a.m. or 7 when not everybody was there to see me pack up all my gear and everything? It's a little just humiliating okay i didn't want to be humiliated and they said fine but you have to turn in your keys and you have to report in and you'll have to be escorted and i said fine so i go home it's raining i go to the new apartment my wife chipper sue comes up she goes, oh that's so sweet that you came home to help me unpack i said dear i'll be here for quite some time i got some thinking to do and i let her know and she was very supportive you know she said this is all going to be fine you'll find something else and I rekindled my relationship with the Rhino founders, who now had a record label, Rhino Records. And I discussed with them their need, or they discussed with me the need they had for a business affairs person, but they only wanted to do it as a consulting. And I said, that was fine. You could be my first consulting client. They were. I, can stay cons I consulted with them for about six, eight months, built up the business, brought them some good deals and all. And then one thing led to another. I was brought in-house and become, became the third uh, minority partner in Rhino. And then how did you get the Shout Factory? Well, Rhino, we built and built, and then we, we sold it uh, to the Warner Music Group. I was uh, hired to do business affairs at the studio level for all the labels by Bob Daly. When Bob left, and, and Richard stayed on to be the president of Rhino for Richard Foose, who was one of the founders. Um, and when Bob left and Bob was great to work for, and it was like, it wasn't like working at a major company. It was like working at a small family oriented entrepreneurial situation. But when Bob left, a new person came in, in New York, um, didn't work out. They bought me out of my contract. Um, I talked to Richard. He wasn't quite ready to leave because his contract wasn't over yet, but he said, let's figure out to do something when I'm out. In the meantime, I formed my second consultancy, which was very cleverly titled Dinosaur Consultants. Um, <laughs> the reason was I had just turned 50. God, that was 15 years ago. I had just turned 50 and let go. And I thought part of the reason they may have let me go was not just because I wasn't going to New York or they were restructuring, but because I was 50, I was a dinosaur. So my stationery read Dinosaur Consultants. <laughs> We're not extinct yet, motherfucker. That was my, that was my thing. Because I felt I still had some time to stomp the earth and make some, make some noise. 
So I had the consultancy. Richard and I were talking. When Richard got out of Rhino, uh, we formed Shout. His brother, who uh, Garson Foos, uh, who was the head of marketing at Rhino, uh, also wanted out. So the three of us became founding partners, and uh, there was Shout Factory. And now you have over 10,000 different titles. I don't know if we have that many, but if you tell me, we do. That's amazing. It's, uh, it's All right. been fun. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of anybody, whether you know them or not. Tell me what comes to your mind. Could be one word, a sentence, anything. Okay. Alice Cooper. Friend, family man, great person to work with. The late Teddy Pendergrass. Amazing. Great voice. Sexy. Humble. Blondie. Debbie Harry. Okay. Cryptic. Mel Brooks. Funniest man I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I wish my father was alive to go to a meeting with me. Judd Apatow. Gentleman. Brilliant. Nice person. Elton John. Leon Nirenberg. My childhood friend who turned me on to Elton John uh, was my first friend when I moved out here to L.A., and I fell in love with the music. Got it. What did Lenny Bruce mean to you? Lenny Bruce meant a lot to me because he was such an iconic comedian that I, you know, I've always felt didn't have his just, and neither did my partner, Richard. So we decided we unearthed some stuff that we would do the Lenny Bruce box set, and we found a lot of stuff. And we loved it. We loved what we, what we found, which was a labor of love. We worked with uh, Kitty Bruce's daughter. And we call it, I affectionately call it the Bar Mitzvah album because this box set started at Rhino. We never finished it at Rhino. We took it with us to Shot Factory. It took 13 years to complete. Wow. Steve Martin. Genius. Renaissance person. Richard Pryor. Unbelievably funny. Unbelievably important in the pantheon of comedians. Linda Ronstadt. Just see her on stage at the, at the Troubadour barefoot smiling. Billy Joel. At the piano, my start. The late Gary Shandling. Interesting meetings. You'd have interesting meetings with Gary. You didn't, I didn't know at times when he was being serious or being funny about it, but uh, it was a great run with Gary. Deeply missed. Awesome. I have a funny habit um, that whenever I see an artist somewhere that I admire, their body of work or something, I have no fear. I go right up to them and just say one thing. I just say, hey, Barry, I just want to say what a big fan I am and how much joy you brought to my life. You're, it's amazing. Thank you very much. And walk away. And most of the time they'll say, excuse me, what's your name? Uh, uh, Thank you, man. That was real sweet. You want an autograph? No, I don't want an autograph. I don't want a picture. I just want to say thank you. Because most of these people that you mentioned, all of the ones you mentioned, have brought something to my life that makes me a better person. Whether it made me laugh, makes me smile, made me feel good. As a reviewer, yeah. tell our audience a musical artist that's still relevant today that you missed on when they were a young artist and you wrote a review that wasn't so glowing. I, I honestly can't remember one. Because I, you know, writing reviews, I'm 65 now. I was back in my 20s. I don't, think I, I don't think I ever really wanted to do a bad review. I don't think I ever said somebody sucked, to be honest. Got it. 
All right, your proudest moment in show business. When Rock and Roll Tonight debuted, it was a vision. I never thought it would happen. That was the proudest moment. But there have been a lot of proud moments. I mean, proudest is kind of a not the right word. I mean, meeting Ahmed Erd again and becoming Ahmed's friend, who is the founder of Atlantic Records, and spending a week with him at his house in Bodrum, Turkey, and his wife an assorted guest. That would be a proud moment. I probably was at an event that you were at. It's one of my greatest memories of my life in 1986 at Madison Square Garden. Do you know what that is? No. The 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records. I did not make that one. I did not. I had a press pass okay. and I was on the floor and I'll never forget it because Led Zeppelin closed the show with John Bonham's son. It was unbelievable. When Jimmy Page walked out, it was like a jack-in-the-box. Yeah. No, it's, listen, uh, you know, I, I was at um, Ahmet's memorial service in New York, uh, and the eulogy was delivered by his two closest friends, and that was Henry Kissinger and Mick Jagger. And I'll never forget Henry Kissinger's great line, because Henry came on after Mick Jagger, and he goes, I bet none of you can say, the Rolling Stones open for you. <laughs> uh, but he was just a, an amazing man. So I, I want to I withdraw my, my, my proudest moment or my favorite moment. I've just been blessed by having lots of them. Got it. Who were the artists on that first show? Funny story. Um, we had to find a major opening act. And at the time, the biggest act going was um, Billy Squire. He had had a number one or had a number one record. So Billy Squire, I happen to know his manager. And the toughest thing, I think Barry can attest to this, managing acts and knowing acts, is getting somebody to do your very first show on a debut of a new series. When you are a manager and you're producing, because managers are very, very territorial and sometimes they get a little uppity when you talk to their artists. Right, or... but no, I talked to the managers, but it was like, well, once you get on and we see what it is, because I'm just telling them a vision. But Stuart Young, who was managing Billy Squire at the time, was a friend of Shep's, mine, and uh, Danny Marcus, who also worked at uh, Alive Enterprises with us. And we went to Stuart, and he agreed to do it. And the thing that I was mentioning about the show, it had a segment called Magic Moment. So we went to Billy Squire. There, now that he's going to do the show, he's going to play his hit, Everybody Wants Some, or and a couple other songs, and we said, okay, what's your magic moment? He goes, I want a guitar jam with Jeff Beck. We said, okay, we're going to try to do this. So we call Jeff Beck's manager in London. He speaks to Jeff. He comes back and says, you know what? Jeff loves this idea, with one exception. He doesn't want to jam with Billy Squire. He wants to jam with the late, great Les Paul. Said, oh, boy. I said, I'll tell you what. Will Jeff Beck be my opening act? Will he be the Will he be the star? Will he perform? I'll get back to you. The next day he gets back, he goes, no, he'll just do the jam. I said, then he's going to have to jam with Jeff Beck, Les Paul, and Billy Squire. It's got to be that way. And they reluctantly said yes. We got Les Paul to come out of retirement at the time. Uh, in my office hangs a Les Paul gold top guitar that he brought for each of the producers of the show because he was so honored that we would bring him on and he'd get to play with, with uh, Jeff Beck. And I don't play any instruments, as I said before, but it hangs proudly in my office. And, and that was 
that was the shining moment of the first show. Wow. Your biggest disappointment and how it fueled you to greater successes. My biggest disappointment was probably in a personal moment when I let my family down, okay? Um, and having to deal with the fact that I had disappointed them in their belief in me and me vowing that, uh, that it was a minor setback or a setback that I would rectify if they would just believe in me and understand, and they did. And it had to do with professionally merging with personally. Yeah, but, you know, to me, those lines are blurred, personal and professional. You know, I got to have it all. I got to have a balance in there. And, uh, you know, it was just a situation that needed to be rectified. And it was, and it is. And uh, their belief is fine. I would imagine going through your life with your dad disappointing you over and over and over and over again, that just doing that one time must have just right. crushed I mean, you. Yeah, because, you know, none of us are perfectionists. We can try to be, but we all have. We all have something that, you know, we're either regret doing, not proud of, whatever. But, you know, once learned, twice burned is what I like to live by. So I learned and I was uh, graciously uh, given, a, given a hall pass and allowed to, uh, to make amends and uh, come back. Last question. You've worked with all sorts of artists, brilliant artists. You've also worked with all sorts of executives and people moving up in the business. What advice do you have for the young person who's living in the back of a tailor shop somewhere in the world with their mom and their dad on a mattress or a cot on the floor with nothing and to get to the kind of level and have the kind of career that you have now? I think it comes with dreaming, believing in yourself, doing what you think is right without hurting others. Stick to it. There will be disappointments. I mean, I see this a lot with my kids. You know, they've had their, their ups and their downs. Uh, but at the end of the day, I read a quote recently that I think is a, a great one to live by. It says, when going through hell, keep on walking. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You just got to just persevere. Um, set your goal and keep walking. So that's it. Awesome. Awesome. I can't believe it. Bob Emmer, you seized me and squeezed me, oh, and we had the greatest time. Thank you so, so much for doing this. I hope you had a good time. I did. Thank you. It's been very, very gratifying for me. Thank you. Thanks, Bear. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. 
landing on Todd Roberts from Las Vegas, Nevada. Congratulations, Todd. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, this one is from Meet the Press, April 14th, 2016. Title is Great Conversations, five stars. It reads, if you like great conversations about show business and life, this one's for you. Well, thank you very much, Meet the Press. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. Till it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.